Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah, the 40th chapter. Isaiah chapter 40. We got down through verse 11. That's where we're talking about the shepherd and his sheep. And in verse 11, we said, He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. talked about the shepherd was tender and kind that he was full of love and compassion, that he was considerate and reasonable, that he is filled with knowledge and wisdom, that he is able to lead and to guide and to feed and to rule by instruction and and, and by example and not by dictation. And he has courage to protect his flock at the risk of his own life, and this describes the Lord as how he felt about us. But verses 12... We said in our chapter through 26 have to do with the supremacy of Jehovah. These verses serve to expand our knowledge of God. And when we begin to deal with these next few verses from uh, 12 through 26, we'll see how he speaks of himself. So let's look at verse 12. It says, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with a span, and compassed comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. So in this chapter, Jehovah speaks of himself and the evidences that he is God and all is spoken of to encourage our faith in him who is the almighty and who is uh, all powerful. Notice that statement, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand to measure the waters of the seas and of the oceans Even with all of our scientific developments and all the technology, is an impossibility, is incomprehensible. Can you imagine measuring the waters in all the oceans? Because the depths are varied. I mean, you'd have to map out the floor of the ocean to measure it. And with all the technology that we have, it it would be almost humanly impossible to imagine measuring the waters. We know the area, we can measure the land, the area it covers, some of the depths we know, but there's, you'd have to have every depth of every area, of every part, of every body of water in the whole world, and it's rather in, humanly incomprehensible. And yet they're pictured as being in the palm of God's hand. He's measured the waters in the palm of his hand. The purpose of this statement is in contrast to the magnitude of God and the smallness of man. And we see that we're very small, do we not? A similar type of disputation which baffled the mind of Job is found in the 38th through the 41st chapter. You read Job chapters 38 through 41 and he talks about God's power and, and his creation and all of the great universe and the stars and the sun and the moon and the, and the starry heavens and the earth and the seas and all of it. And it baffles his mind. And it should ours as well. Notice what it says there in the, this verse. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with a span. Meted out heaven with a span. And comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure. The dust of the earth in a measure. And weighed the mountains in scales. Can you imagine that? Weighed the mountains in scales. And what else? And the hills in a balance. That's what God is like. There's no 
a way of putting any, any uh, measure to God Himself because He is almighty and all-powerful and all-knowing. You know, you have people that say, well, the earth just happened to be because of some explosion or whatever. But where was there anything to explode in the first place? Where'd that come from? Uh, there has to be everything that we know of has a mastermind behind it. It had to start with some intelligence behind it. You say, if you've got an a automobile, it had to start with someone engineering and making those parts and putting them all together to make the thing run. And the effect demands someone behind that effect, someone behind that instrument, someone behind what you see and know and can engineer to do anything. There has to be a mind behind it. How much greater mind had there to be behind a man that is created and made in, in all the, with all the parts and all of the functions of our bodies and minds? So, we know that there is a God, a great God. And uh, then look at the next verse. It says, verse 13, Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being His counselor, hath taught Him? Did God have to have anyone to teach Him? In this verse is quoted in Romans 11, verse 34. Look at this. Romans 11, verse 34 says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed to him again? It says, For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And again, Paul speaks of it in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 16, he says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Then he's talking about the things that Christians know, but it says, But we have the mind of Christ. Paul said in the Philippians, Let this same mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So we're to have the mind of Christ. We're to let God's Holy Spirit put into our minds and hearts the thoughts of God. And the Bible says that, let this mind be in you, Philippians chapter 2, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And he took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, not just any death, even the death of the cross. And so this is the downward steps that Jesus took. And then what does it say? It says, Wherefore, listen, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow things in heaven, things in earth, and, every, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the mind, let this mind be in you. So who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment? Did God have to be taught in the path of judgment? And taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding. If but one part of his creation cannot be fathomed, then surely no one can measure the Spirit of God. And in this case, who can give him advice? No one can direct God. Let me give you this in Proverbs 16, verse 2. It says, All the ways of man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirits. 
he weighed the spirits. Verse 14, look at this. With whom took he counsel? We just read that. The way of understanding. The prophet frames this verse in a series of rhetorical questions. And the clear answer to who, notice they're all questions. With whom took he counsel? Who instructed him? Who taught him? Taught him knowledge? Showed him the way of understanding? Ends in a question. It's a whole series of questions. And the clear answer is no, no one. No one told him anything. The divine qualities of justice and knowledge and understanding are not something that God had to learn from anyone. Rather, they're inherent in God. And when God passes those things on to man by His Word and by His Spirit, then we become knowledgeable of God and the things of God and the ways of God in God's mind and heart. In verse 15 it says, Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are as counted as the small dust of the balance. The small dust of the balance. If you have balances it to weigh things and as it says, sits in a store and it collects dust, God even knows that man and even nations. Can you imagine the nations being just like the, a drop in the bucket? So what's a, that's what they are in comparison to God. And yet nations think they're big and powerful. Men even, individually, sometimes we think ourselves so muscular and so big and so, uh, you know, and if not physically, mentally, boy, we got minds that are just, will blow your mind, you know. Well, God says, that's just, that's just small. That's just small. Like dust. We give ourselves too much credit and do not give God enough credit, don't we? In comparison to God, men are dropped in the bucket or grains of sand blown by the wind. Notice he says, uh, Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. The isles or the islands. Isaiah speaks of islands and it generally signifies distant lands. And what does he say they are? They're a very little thing. The universal tenor of this chapter shows that they amount to very little. Look in verse 16. All the wood in Lebanon's forest would not make... Uh, a sacrificial fire worthy of God's glory. Look at verse 16. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All the wood in the forest, Lebanon's forests were classified as great forests, but they wouldn't even have sufficient wood to burn and make a sacrificial fire worthy of God's glory. You say, well, look at our timbered lands and we have forests all over the world. But God is saying that all of these things, and it, nor the beasts thereof, all the beasts that you could gather up sufficient for a burnt offering. You couldn't build the altar and the fire under it and all the beasts that would be, be uh, collected, rounded up and put together and sacrificed to be sufficient for God. No wonder the Lord said at times, that all the offerings that Israel offered, especially when their heart was not in it. He says, why bring you this mu multiplied number of offerings and your heart is not right and they wouldn't repent of sin? And that should be a lesson to us to let our, at least let our uh, religion and our worship be acceptable to God. Not because we have a multitude of sacrifices, because but we have a heart willing to obey what uh, God's Word teaches. That's what we need to do. <clears throat> Notice uh, in verse 17, All nations before Him are as nothing. 
less than nothing. The wealth and the grand success of all the nations is worthless in the face of the glory of God. And they are counted to him less than nothing. And vanity. Remember in the book of Ecclesiastes it says over and over again, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. When it speaks of man accomplishing all that he can and claiming all the wealth that he may accumulate and all of the good that he may do and all of the uh, enjoyments of life that he may have and all the pleasures. And he touches on every subject. And yet, in Ecclesiastes, it says, Thus saith the preacher. What did the preacher say? He said, all, Vanity of vanities. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. And if you set your pleasures in all, in all earthly, uh, any or all earthly things, if your pleasures are not found in spiritual things, if you do not turn a part of your life over to spiritual the spiritual side of it, and realize that you can have a thousand automobiles, homes on every uh, vacation spot on the face of the United States and all over the world. You can have uh, all the wealth there is and money, as much as Bill Gates, and he's got more than anybody. But it still will not satisfy unless you have something else. Because why do people... Like that, want more and more all the time. It means they don't have enough. Not satisfied. You, you've heard me tell of the... Uh, Dr. Conley told me the story of a preacher over in Ireland in a revival meeting, and he made the announcement. He said, I want everyone to come, you know, all over the, the city and everywhere, and the advertisements went out to come. And he says, I'm going to give a thousand-pound note. And I don't know what amount that is in British terms, but anyway, thousand pound note to anyone that can prove to me that they're satisfied with what they have. Well, there's one old miser came in there and he come down and he says, boy, I told all he had of farms and lands and possessions and money in the bank and everything. And he said, he raised his hand when the preacher said that. And he said, I'm satisfied with everything I've got. He says, I have plenty to satisfy me. And he walked down the aisle and he says, now give me my thousand pound note. And he says, you can't have it. He says, why? He says, because if you had enough and you were satisfied, you wouldn't want it. That makes good sense, doesn't it? Sometimes people, the more they get, the more they want. We have to come to some place of contentment and satisfaction in our lives. Have you ever been able to say in your heart, I have all I need, all I want? We should come to that place at some point in time and realize that spiritual things need to be put into the picture instead of material and physical. It's a hard lesson to get through to most of us, isn't it? Verse 18 says, To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare Him? A God so strong and mighty can in no way be equated with an image made like man. Can you compare him to a man? Certainly you cannot compare him to a man. We should never think of comparing ourselves with God. Look at verse 19. The, the workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold and cast the silver chains, speaking of the, the deities that are made by man, and possibly the chains are used to help sustain a statue of deity. So sarcasm is directed against those that worship idols. There are people that worship idols. There were many that worshipped idols in the days of uh, Isaiah. And he spoke of it here. Verse 20. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot 
He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. If he cannot make an image out of gold or silver, and men who cannot afford images of gold or silver will confine their idolatry and worship to a piece of carved wood. They made, they made wood statues and wood in, wooden images if they couldn't afford the other. It shows you how far man will go to worship something that, that's made of his own hands. Verse 20 says, He that, uh, verse uh, 21 I should say, Have you not known, have you not heard, hath it not been told you from the beginning, have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? From the beginning, have men known anything? Do they know anything of God? Do they know anything of God even by His creation and by His handiwork? You know, a lot of times you think, well, I have to... There, before the, the Bible was preached and before the Word of God came in written form, there was still knowledge of God that men rejected. Let me read in the book of Romans chapter 1, if you will. In Romans chapter 1, it says in verse 20, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Man is without excuse because he will not live up to the knowledge that God has given him, whether it's a little knowledge or a whole lot of knowledge, if he rejects that. Just like all over the world, in lands where, in places and individuals that have never heard the Bible and never have heard of God through the Word of God, they worship and they sacrifice and they try to do something to, to uh, get rid of their sins. I mean... And they cut themselves, they afflict themselves, they sacrifice some of their own flesh and blood, and they've been known through the ages to do that. Where'd they get that? They know that they're sinners and, and there's something within them that tells them that they need to worship God. And then they have a certain amount of knowledge, but not full, complete knowledge. Just like uh, the Bible tells us that God sent Peter to the house of Cornelius. Here's a man that that feared God. He didn't know God, but he feared God. And he worshipped God the best he knew how. So that God said to Cornelius, you call for Peter. And he said, Peter, you go to Cornelius. And he worked on both ends of the line to bring them together. And he says, go and tell... Uh, he came with words whereby he and his house could be saved. So when a man lives up, he feared God and gave alms always, the Bible says. So where you have a man that's willing to worship God and has enough light and enough repentance and enough heart to worship God, if he just knew better, God will send someone to tell him better and give him more instructions. That's why we have missionaries that go and teach people. Uh, look at verse... Uh, by the way, it says, from the beginning. Look at this. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Verse 21. Hath, hath it not been told you from the beginning that God is the omnipotent creator and idolatry is foolish? He's been talking about idolatry. He's been talking about men making uh, idols of silver and gold and even of wood. If they were so impoverished they couldn't have silver and gold, they'd make a wooden statue to worship. And so... God is omnipotent. He's the creator. And idolatry is foolish. Look at verse 22. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. Now, Darrell said, I called you all 
dumb sheep the other night, but he says, here we're all grasshoppers. Right? That's what it says here. It says the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. Remember back there when, when the spies went in to spy out the land and they came back, uh, Joshua and Caleb came back with a good report and the other men says, we're as grasshoppers in their sight. Well, listen, we're all as grasshoppers in God's sight. So why? But he says there's, you remember the ten spies? They said there are giants in the land. And he says, we're in their, their side as grasshoppers, and, and as in our side, we're that same, in that same respect to them. Because they were afraid of the giants in the land. And really, they could see all the, everything was magnified. Now, I'm sure that those men were not that much larger. You know, but they, they saw them as powerful and as big, and you know, we just can't live up to those. Sometimes we create an image of people that they're so great that we can't do anything and we put ourselves so small. But you know, men are men. And even the greatest of men are men of have feet of clay. In fact, we've seen some big ones fall, haven't we? And whether it's in the spiritual realm or physical, it's still true. So, we find it says, He... It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. How is God seen? He sits upon the circle of the earth. The circle of the heaven is found in Job 22, verse 14. And the circle of the deep occurs in Proverbs 8, verse 27. But this is the only example of the circle of the earth. Some see... This is an allusion to an ancient Near East cosmological thought that considers the earth flat with a sky of vault sustained by pillars. But this interpretation is far from, from uh, certain. In other words, with a vaulted roof over the earth, because the Bible tells us differently. In Proverbs 8 verse 27, when it's telling about the circle of the deep, we find that uh, the meaning seems to be that the limitation of God placed on the chaotic seas. But God is not limited to any realm, whether it's the earth or the heavens or the seas. And it might here refer to the entirety of the earth. We already said as God looks down upon men from on high, men are only as grasshoppers or locusts in his sight. Again, the greatness of God and the puniness of man are contrasted. So if you want to don't compare God. Remember we had a verse uh, It says who can compare himself to God. So instead of comparing, we have a way to contrast ourselves with God, but not to compare ourselves with God. The curtain that he's talking about. The sky is like unto a curtain or a canopy. Notice. He spreads out, stretches out the heavens as a curtain and spreads them out as a tent to dwell in. And that's the way it appears. The sky is likened to a curtain or a canopy stretched out as a part of his tent. On earth, for centuries, God's habitation was a tent. Remember, he dwelt in the tabernacle, a tent that was dismantled and moved every time the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire moved. This tent was dismantled and moved along. You know, Moses... The children of Israel had to dismantle all the parts of that tent. And they had to carry everything that was to be transported in various ways by those three different sons of uh, Levi. 
they had to go and carry them in certain ways, and uh, they had to dismantle it. And then we find that God made a, another temple in the days of Solomon, and we find later on that Jesus came and dwelt among us. God dwelt in the temple for a time, but Jesus came and tabernacled among us. That's what it says when He dwelt among us. And now He's dwelling in the church. And He's dwelling in us individually. So He found a place of dwelling, didn't He? But His heavenly abode is also like a tabernacle. In fact, today I mentioned in the Scripture, I had a funeral service, it says we know if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, this tent we're living in, and it will be dissolved. It says we have a building of God and a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Uh, Paul tells us in the book of Hebrews that the figures of this tabernacle of old are uh, that's a picture of the tabernacle in the heavenlies. Let me find it for you in Hebrews chapter 9, if you will. Hebrews, the ninth chapter. Notice what it says here. In verse 23, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens should be purified with these... But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Verse 24. For Christ is not entered into holy places made with hands, like that's the tabernacle like Moses made, or even the temple uh, in Solomon's day, or, or in uh, the temple of Herod in the days of Jesus. But he dwelleth not in holy places made with hands. He's not entered into holy places made with hands which are figures of the true. What are they? Figures of the true. But into heaven itself, that's the true, the true tabernacle, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Just as the priest in the Old Testament appeared in the holy place, either the, uh, the tabernacle, the tent, or the temple, so Christ has entered into the holy place and appears there for us. Not in the earthly realm, but in the heavenly realm. All right, let's look at the next verse here. Verse 23, we'll try to hurry on down. That bringeth the princes to nothing, and he maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. What does he do? The judges of the earth, the rulers of the earth, even those in high authority, and the princes and rulers, they have to answer to God. And despite of their power and their authority, from a human vantage point, before God they are nothing. And men that are kings and leaders are disposed and even set up by the Lord. In the book of Daniel, verse chapter 2, verse 21, it says, He changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. Who removes kings and sets up kings? God does. You know, we have people say, well, why does God permit this wicked ruler and wicked di- dictator in a certain area of the world? They'll, they'll serve. He serves time. He controls the times and seasons. And for a time, they may uh, be in power. But at some time, he removes kings. And he can remove them in many ways. The longer they can hold on to it, the longer they will. Men are like that. But anyway, God has control of it. And one of these days, he, he'll turn the wheels Things will change, and they'll change for the better. Remember, as we studied Isaiah earlier, and we said that God would call His people Israel, and He's also going to make a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and there will be an open highway in the future, and then He's going to call those Assyrians His people, and He's going to call Egypt His people, and Israel His inheritance, and He's going to claim all of them to to belong to Him. Let's see if I can find that verse. Remember where it was? 
way back there and I brought it to your attention. Uh, maybe I can find it. Chapter 19. Chapter 19. Look at 19. Verse 23, 24, and 25. Look at chapter 19. So who takes care of the powers that be upon this earth? You say, I don't like the way things are. Just wait and God will change them how they ought to be someday. And when they re- when He really changes them is when the Jesus will come. Verse 23. In that day there shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. Now you know where Egypt is. And the Assyria it's talking about is in the location where uh, uh, Iraq is. And there's going to be a highway out of what? Egypt to Assyria. And it says, And the Assyrian shall come into Egypt. They don't now. And the Egyptian into Assyria. And they'll have to pass through Israel when they do, won't they? And, and then it says, And the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. Remember during the, the war, Desert Storm, they were, what? Enemies, right? And Egypt was allied with our nation and the other nations that were that Iraq was causing all the Saddam Hussein was calling all the problem to. But then it says, And the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. In that day, this is a future day when the Lord will break down the barriers. It says, In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria. Israel shall be the third with them. Even a blessing in the midst of the land. Where's all the violence come from and all these bombings and things? Nowadays, against Israel. But it says, They will be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing, even a blessing in the midst of the land. Look at verse 25. Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. All through the Old Testament, Egypt was not called God's people. But now, it's going to be a day in the future. Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands. And then it says, and Israel, mine inheritance. Three things there. Isn't that great? That'll happen when the Lord comes. Back in our passage in Isaiah 40, we got down to verse uh, 23. Look at verse 24. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stocks shall not take root in the earth. And he also, he shall also blow upon them and they shall wither, wither. And the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. These princes, when they oppose God's purposes and God's people, they're cut down like trees and become extinct. And they're blown away. They're like helpless plants against which the stormy blast come, withering uh, the vegetation. Look at verse 25. To whom then will I will ye eat liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One. So are you going to try to compare God to these judges and these princes? Are you going to say they're like this particular, God is like this particular judge or leader? No, not so. To whom? Then it says in verse 26, Lift up your eyes on high, and behold who, behold who hath created these things that bring out their host by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Think of this for a moment. He calleth them all by names. The very stars of the heavens are named by the Lord. Man has tried to name some of the starry uh, gatherings, or the stars themselves even, or when they're grouped together. But it says God called them all by names. This expresses God's lordship over all of his creation. 
And yet, his involvement with each and every part of his creation. He calls all the stars by names. You know, Adam was asked to name the animals as an expression of his authority over them. Have you ever thought about what Adam did? Go back when Adam named. Look, let's go back and look at it just quickly. The book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 19. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. Now listen, I want to try to give you something. Every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he, to see, look at that, what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, now notice this statement, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names, the, the margin says called names. So he called the names. The names Adam called was with the intelligence of God, but that's the name that God had given that animal. And Adam had the intelligence to call it by that same name. So Adam didn't say, I'm going to name this one this and this one that. God already had the names, but Adam called the names. See, God's intelligence was given to Adam so that he would show that he could call the names and was intelligent enough. Look at that very carefully. He brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. Well, they already had a name. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. You see, let me try to help you. Over when Zacharias had John, remember, he was smitten where he could not speak until John the Baptist was born. And he was told by the angel, says, now when he's born, thou shalt call his name John. God named him, right? And so, uh, John the Baptist was born. What happened? Uh, they wanted to call him by some other name. And Elizabeth, John, uh, uh, Zacharias had already told Elizabeth by a writing tablet or some way, but we couldn't speak. His name is to be John. God's named him John. And so, uh, when they asked the, the father, Zacharias said, his name, he wrote to ask for a writing tablet. And he wrote down, his name is John. Well, that's what his name was. Where did it come from? It came from God. God says, you'll call him that. And they said, why, why, is this, why are you going to call him by John? There's none of your kindred by that name. You're going to call him John because God said he was John. And he was John the Baptist. So God does, he, give, he puts in men's minds and thoughts and hearts what he wants done. And he is able to pass that knowledge on to us. Just like his word is to be preached. Preacher gets up and says, what, I'm, what am I to preach? And he starts preaching this and that and the other. Well, if it's something we think or say, or maybe something comes out of our own mind, that's just what we say. But if we preach what God says, God's already said it here. All we have to do is just take what He said and unfold it, and we do expound it. In the book of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the Ezra stood upon a pul- pulpit of wood, and remember, he read the law, the Word of God, and he gave the sense, the Bible says. In other words, he interpreted, he, he spoke and he explained it. That's what he did. That's what we try to do, is take the Word of God and explain from this Word what God is really saying and rightly dividing the Word of truth. All right, back here and we'll try to hurry and finish. We're just nearly through with this passage. Isaiah 40, verse 27 why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speaketh, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? There, that's what 
Israel was saying. In verse 28, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of His understanding. Haven't you heard about the everlasting God? About His attributes? He's different than the gods of Canaan. They look ridiculous in His sight. He's the Creator of all things. It's this word Creator is used exclusively to describe God's activity in creation and it's never used of a human artisan or one that creates in the human fashion. We create things, we make things, but never as God makes them. And God never gets tired. Look at verse 29. He giveth power to the faint, to them that have no might. He increases strength. And He's able to give of His energy and share it with you and I. Brother Jim sings a song on His strength is sufficient. Uh, the Lord told Paul when he prayed about a thorn in the flesh to be removed. And for this he besought the Lord thrice. And God said to Saul, or Paul rather, at this time. He was Saul of Tarsus earlier, but Paul... He said, my strength is sufficient for thee. He says, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. So God is able to give strength, power to the faint, and to them that have no might, He increases strength. Now look, even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. Young men who are in their prime, who are strong, become weak and faint. You know why? Because they're human and not God. Have you ever thought you were strong, stronger than you really are? In the strength, it says, in the strength of your youth. But some, sometimes we give too much credit for that. We're all human. We're not God. But this last verse, and we'll just mention it in closing. It says, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. This is patient waiting upon the Lord, trusting in God for His strength and His power. For we have none of ourselves. And it says, They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. So what is, where do we derive our strength? By waiting upon the Lord for His strength to be uh, given to us. By trusting in the Lord. When it says wait, it doesn't mean just just wait and say, well, someday it will come. But wait in trust. They that wait upon the Lord and trust that His strength will come and His power will come and His He will mete out strength as it's needed. I used to think as a young preacher, if I could just be real powerful every time I got up to preach. Well, listen, I found out that when you need the power, it's there. That's what, and, and, and all you need is there. And you don't need more than you have. You don't need any more than God gives you. Someone says, I just want to be a dynamic preacher. Well, if it's a dynamic situation, you'll be a dynamic preacher. But it may not be a dynamic situation. When you go out here to automobile, now listen carefully. When you go out here to your automobile, the first, when you get in it and you're going to back out easily from there, you don't put your foot to the floorboard, do you? I mean, you've got all those 260 or 320 or 40 horses there, but you don't put your foot to the floorboard and back that thing out and hit everything in the... Well, you don't need it. But when you're going down the highway and you need to go 75 miles an hour, well, you put a little more gas in there and you use a little more of that power. It's available, but it's not necessary all the time. And God will give us the strength we need when it's available. Just like I had a service over there, a funeral service today, over at Capitan. Prayed for God's help. 
God gave us help. But when you start, you feel very weak. You feel like, now if God doesn't help me, I have to have that strength and power. When you get up to teach or preach, you need God's strength and power. When you go out as a Christian to witness, you need God's strength and power. And you must trust God for it and trust Him to give it when it's needed. And not overdo it, right? You don't want those RPMs up there as high as they'll go when you're just pulling a little grade. But if you're climbing that mountain, you're going to need some of them, right? And that's the way with God's power to us. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. Boy, they say, well, I can fly. And then what? You're not going to fly all the ways. It says, and they shall they shall run and not, they not be weary. You're not going to run always either, are you? And then it says, and they shall walk and not faint. He's going to give you strength to walk and keep on keeping 